Hey, people, listen up. It's a fucking lockdown. Hello, I'm Sean McDonald, and this is a lockdown edition of Blethered with my pal, Chris Gray. Chris is an interesting, intelligent and articulate guy, which is why he makes a good podcast guest. He started out working in the police force, but he decided to leave that after a few years to go and study law. And on top of that, he's a trusted celebrant for weddings and similar important events. You'll hear him explain how all of that came about and how it's going. In relation to Chris's extensive experience with the police and studying law, we talk about society's attitude to legal authority and we also talk about how the law needs to modernise at a similar speed to technology given the impact that it has on our everyday lives and we also talk about the impacts of catfishing which is mental. We address the coronavirus lockdown and what we hope to see society learn from the experience and the wee things that we're personally looking forward to once life goes back to normal. Aside from the obvious things like family and friends I'm really looking forward to being able to go to Tesco and clear my throat without staff looking at me like I've just said the n-word. I completely get why they do it, so I've no complaints about that. This episode was recorded through video chat, safety first, so the sound isn't the best quality, but that's unavoidable, as you obviously will understand. But I hope you enjoy it anyway, and if you do, feel free to share it. Before we start, if you want to hear extra blethered episodes, have access to some new shows and receive some exclusive benefits, you can get access to that by following the link in the episode notes to the Patreon page. There's a new music show starting where I'm speaking with artists and bands and they'll be playing some of their music. The Spanish episodes are in there and there's a few other shows to come as well which will be announced in due course. Blethered is 100% me, no producers, no researchers, no external funding. So any other help is appreciated and all support goes a long way to helping me provide more episodes on a more frequent basis. So a big, big thank you to the people who have pledged to support already. I love you. A different episode of Blethered, they're slightly different in the way that it's recorded, but we're going to have to get used to this for the next wee while. Safety comes first. Can I see anybody? But with the miracle of technology, I'm able to sit and talk to my guests through a screen. And this week, it's uh, this episode, it's Chris Gray, my pal. Chris is how I'm going to introduce you. How you doing, mate? Good, mate. Good, mate. Yourself? <sighs> we'll get. We'll come to that. <laughs> we'll come to that. Um, <laughs> Obviously, this is a a weird situation, a weird dynamic. Um, apologies to people if the sound isn't great, but I'm really working with the best that, that I possibly can. Um, but I thought it would be interesting to have quote-unquote normal people on to speak to people that you maybe might not have heard of, but will still have the most interesting stories and also the most interesting takes and opinions on things. So where I'd quite like to start with you, Chris, is leaving school because we're going to talk about your career, your very interesting career history, career path, uh, and sort of career progression. And they're all connected, but they all seem also completely unconnected. So I'd like to talk about that. Uh, and I'll stop rambling. So if you could talk me through that, talk me through leaving school, what you went on to do. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was never one for school, uh, in honesty. Um I wasn't so much a, a troublemaker, um, so much as somebody that had a pretty rubbish attention span for 
anything that I wasn't that interested in. I always failed maths, things like that. Absolutely aced English computing. Um, and was always getting out of trouble for not paying too much attention. So I'd end up, um, didn't do very well on exams, left after standard grades uh, for the young team. That's, I don't know what that is now, Nats or something like that. Um, but uh, so I left at um, 16, went to college to do hires because at that time I wanted to be a psychologist. So mm-hmm. I went there, tried to kind of get my arse in gear. Am I, am I allowed to swear? Or? Oh, mate, say whatever the fuck you want. Now you can say it. Right, right okay, no, that's fine. Uh, so I basically thought I'll go to college and get my arse in gear. Um, so I was 16 at that point, just turned when I started. Did higher psychology and um, passed that. But I was still like, still a bit too young for it. Everyone I was hanging about with and stuff was a bit older than me. Um, I thought I was an older head, but it was still carry on, going to the pub and stuff. Didn't really know what I wanted to do. Um, but I always kind of had the inkling of knowing that I, I wanted to help people in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would always be steered towards that. Um, so from leaving school, I went to college, did hires, but mostly just messed around there. Um, and I've got a bit of a funny story. No, it's not it's not funny, but it's unusual. So funny is not the right word. Um, it was just a complete random incident. Um, so I was out with my friends from college one night. So I'd have been just turned 17 at the time, so shouldn't have been at the pub, whatever. Um so I was out in Shawlands with my mates from college and uh, on the way back down the road, um, I was getting a lift down from Battlefield. Um, so short walk, it was like 10 minutes or something like that. Uh, so on the way, um, I hear this woman screaming um, from down one of the streets that I'm just about to pass. So I'm just like, right, let's get on here. Um, and I look down and there's a woman standing on her phone across the road from our balcony. Um, look across and there's a <clears throat> a guy standing over this girl who's obviously distressed, blood all over her face and everything like that. So it's quite graphic, but um, so it was pretty heavy. Um, and I, just, I didn't even think about it; I just went over uh, to try and help. Um, not being like a not being one even at that time for like confrontation or anything like that, but couldn't stand and watch something mm-hmm. like that happened. Uh, the girl had obviously been battered, for want of a, a better word. Um, so I went and split that up and uh, managed to, to deal with the guy. And the woman across the road was great. She was on the phone to the police and luckily there was a van passing. So the, the police came over and, and took over from it, basically. But the, the guy was basically trying to wrestle with me. You know, he was no. a bit uh, a bit mental. Um but managed to at least get him away and get the girl hopefully to safety. What happened after that, I don't know. Never had to go to court or anything like that, but it's just a, one of those things that just something told me that that was the path that I had to go in. Mm-hmm. Had you ever so, considered that before, that you wanted to be part of the police? Or nah, was it literally that, that was the first time? Polar, polar opposite. Um, mm. I really had this idea in my head. My, my, my dad was in the police. Some people will know that and some won't. Um, but at that time, he and I never really got on well. Um, mm-hmm. And I 
never really had a good image of the police and things like that, just from like growing up. And it's not something I ever considered before that. So that kind of makes it sound a bit, I don't know, wanky or whatever, but it was a bit of a, an epiphany moment. Um, so that's when I decided. And when I went home, and like, I still stayed with my parents at the time, when I went home and told my dad, he was like, well, you need to like, buck up your ideas and things like that if you want to go and join. Because I was sort of daft wee guy at the time, you know, I wasn't fit or anything like that as I am now. I was going out drinking all the time and all that stuff. Um, mm. But then I went in the next year, applied for the police, worked really hard for it, got in first time. Did you did you subscribe to think is there is a strange West of Scotland or maybe it's a UK mindset or maybe it's global, maybe it's everywhere, but there's this weird thing of like, um, I'm trying to work out how best to put it. Right, so I remember being 13 or 14 and the police driving by and we guys, we were hanging about, we going, Fucking Poles, man, fucking scum. I remember thinking, like, Aye. why are you Aye. thinking that? Because you're only 13. Like, what has what has shaped that mindset or that, well, that instant reaction in you? Is it your family? Like, because you can't all come from a gangster family, so you don't all have adverse, um, you know, dealings or opinions of the police. Like, where does that come from? I don't, I don't know. Um, but my dad was the only one in my family who joined the police or anything like it. There was quite a few mm. who frequented the cells. <laughs> um, so oh, he was really? the odd one out. One of his brothers was never out of the cells that he actually worked at. So <laughs> uh, it was quite awkward, but funny for him at the time because uh-huh. the police back in those days, it was old school. So everybody just thought it was a laugh. They're like, oh, there's your brother in the jail again. <laughs> um, so it, he was kind of the, the odd one out. Um, and where I grew up and things, it was much the same. Like, nobody really liked the police or things like mm. that. So, like, not that anybody gave me a hard time or anything like that for my, my dad, but everyone that I hung about with were all, like, what people now would call neds and stuff. So you just kind of never really had that. It was kind of mm. from the older ones you hung about with and things like that, that was drummed into you that, the police were always out to get you or something like that. And sometimes, right. you know, the, the police don't help themselves with that image. And um, that's something that um, I kind of struggled with when I, I worked with the police. The images, um, you'll see on like Twitter and Facebook and stuff like that. Um, the Facebook or whatever feeds posting pictures of pouring out wee guys or football fans drink and stuff. <laughs> that, just turns, that just turns people right off against the police and think, why have you not got anything better to do? Even if you've got a legitimate reason for taking alcohol off of people, why are you floating it like that and making it into this issue, antagonising people? That's probably where the the issue comes from for like people that age, like your 13, 14-year-olds and whatever, mm-hmm. doing something they shouldn't be doing, granted. like We all know that drinking at that age isn't um, healthy or good for you or anything, but at that age, we all have the same attitude. Like... So mm. it's no wonder a lot of people were like averse to dealings with the police. So people might find it a wee bit strange. I wonder why I'm just going through your working history. But the reason is it's quite interesting, but I also want to paint a picture of how you then see the world and then how you then fit into that. I find that interesting uh, in a way that your views or your, what you got up to at the weekend, you know, innocent, maybe not so innocent, won't entirely 
won't be what you would imagine the reflection of somebody in your profession or your standing or, or your life experience would, would have. And that's what I find quite fascinating. I don't know if I've just explained that in a totally confused, convoluted way, but, but we'll go on. So you were in the police for a while, let's just say you've you've graduated from, is it Tully Allen College you have yeah. to go to? Yeah. And that. How long did you last working in the police before you made a career change? So I uh, did six years overall. Um, so 18 to just before my 25th birthday um, and it was round about the four years mark that I'd done, completed my probation and stuff like that after two years um, and was given loads of responsibility um, and about the four years I started to get itchy feet and things and wanted to go and do different things and take on more um, and there was a few I won't bore you with the details, but there was a few um, cases where I wasn't really allowed to work the way that I thought we should have been working um, in terms of like really delving into the, the history um, of victims and things and pursuing justice. Um, we were more or less told to just respond to one thing at a time, move on from it. Um, and there was a couple of things, a couple of incidents in particular that really stuck with me, um, and I ended up having to defy like orders from somebody above me to go and uh, pursue a couple of cases um, to get things done for people. But to mm-hmm. me, I just had to do the right thing, um, and I ended up getting getting arsed booted a bit for it. But um, to me, that's the way we should have been working. Um, and I, I just went for it. So then I got interested using that. One in particular, um, I had to use what's called the, the Murov Doctrine. So for any law people, it's um, it's basically where you get a piece of evidence from different incidents that corroborates the other ones. So say you've got mm-hmm. five or six crimes all committed by the same person, but only one witness to each um, you can use the separate witnesses and different crimes to corroborate each other because in Scots law you need two pieces yeah. of evidence, normally witnesses, to uh, to prove a crime. So um, using that, which we didn't really get to do often, didn't really get to do anything kind of high level or anything like that, but particularly it was important for like domestic abuse cases. Um, so quite often... Women, uh, sorry, guys that abused women. Um, not, not to say it doesn't happen the other way around, but predominantly mm-hmm. that's the way it is. Um, right. Would be quite clever about it and do it when there was little to no witnesses around and things, and quite often slipped through the net. And you know, it just wasn't right. So there's a couple of times where I had to do that, take on extra work and things, and got in trouble for it a bit. But then I started to get interested in the law itself um, and working and how that works in the court system and things like that. So started studying part-time. Um, one of my friends whose cousin was a lecturer at Glasgow Uni, and they did a, like, a part-time course. So I signed up for that, used like my time off in lieu and stuff, went along to classes and just absolutely fell in love with it. So the, the interesting stories that you heard, the people, the cases, absolutely everything, loved everything about it. And just decided after about six months into that, I wanted to do it and apply for uni. 
And mm-hmm. at that time, I had a stable job, a mortgage, and all the rest of it. So it was a complete leap of faith. Like, um, obviously, the listeners wouldn't know what my next line of employment uh, was going to be. Kind of landed on my feet with that one. But at that time, it was a, a total leap of faith. Mm-hmm. That's good. Though. So I take it I always go on about this, but you are somebody who subscribes to the whole notion of doing exactly what it is you enjoy in life as opposed to. Yeah. what you think you should be doing or topping up the bank account to pay the bills and, and so on. And there's oh, nothing wrong with absolutely. that at all. Aye, uh, aye, so I, I'm very much the same. Um, a couple of light-hearted ones. What, actually, what I'd quite like to pick up on is you said um, that you your approach to the job in terms of policing, um, you wanted to do things a wee bit differently, you know, on a more personable level. So if anybody's not heard it, when I spoke to Frank, uh, prison officer and he was talking about being a police officer as well and saying that he felt it far more effective and valuable to should we say operate at his own discretion in order to get the best results using a wee bit of human interaction and stuff do you think yeah I suppose you pretty much have just said that but do you think that's something that is ultimately lacking um, in the way that people are policing in communities from the ground up definitely um, it used to be the way that that's that's the way we did used to police, um, mm. and that's the way it was taught. Scottish policing is unique to here. It, it, there's nowhere else really like it. Um, we had guys over training yeah. from South Africa and various places when I was at Tully Allen learning how we approach things. And at the time, we did do things better. Um, and there's still a lot of guys that I know that do the job that do it in that way. Um, mm. The way you approach people, the way you speak to people is so important. You've got to be able to speak to people on their level um, and adjust your approach um, mm. understand, listen to people. So if people don't think they're being listened to, there's probably nothing more annoying in the world, um, especially if you're in an incident where the police are involved, either you've needed them or somebody else has phoned them on you. <laughs> the last thing you want is somebody that's just been a robot and not... Mm communicating with uh, them. So. It's like it's like bureaucracy and following um, complicated procedure getting in the way of using common sense. It just seems to be more, more of a hindrance than a help. Um, you know, that, me saying that, that could be really misinformed and there could be some people who disagree with that. We're saying it's no bureaucracy, or it's laws and structures they have to be in place. I can only say if you want to see, I've not had, I've had very infrequent dealings with the police. Um, never for it, and I've done anyway. So I can't, I've never really been on the receiving end of that in terms of being annoyed. Or, I, I think it's more important for people that are like victims of, of crime or need the police. It's more infuriating mm-hmm. for them than people who are actually getting done by them. Because you, if you say, obviously, you're not happy about being charged with a crime or something like that, but you get charged with it, you get reported to the fiscal's office, you move on. If you're the victim of a crime and somebody comes out to deal with you and they're not fully listening to you or letting the bureaucracy, as you say, get in the way, that's far more frustrating because mm-hmm. exactly at the time when you need the police that you're paying your tax money for, they're, they're operating in a way that's not really grounded and, and really listening to the communities that they're supposed to serve. You know, I'm kind of taking this off on a bit of a tangent just to suit my own um, agenda at this point, but... Ah, please do. And so this is kind of, again, this will probably be quite a, a roundabout way of asking a question, but I'll, I'll make the explanation, then I'll ask just whether you agree with it or not. So I'll make the statement, I think that 
Scottish law, or maybe law everywhere, is fast becoming archaic in the context of how the world is modernising, i.e. through technology. Uh, and I'll explain that. Basically, the law needs to catch up to be able to deal with what I would call cyber crimes, which technically aren't listed as a crime. So the best example I can give, or the only example I can give from a personal perspective is, obviously, this, these absolute nut jobs that keep using my pictures on, like... Um, dating sites and tinder and all that thing and I, now and again i'll call it out on on twitter or something or like in social media because there will be like a, a spike and people getting in touch to say there'll be like say seven or eight people in the space of a week or two saying by the way this person's been chatting to me using your photos they're saying some pretty mental things so i'm like i need to say something because people say oh well they, they obviously know it isn't you i say well no because there's about seven or eight people over this two-week period so basically, it, it gets out really out of hand, but there was one person who was talking to young girls, like really young girls, uh, and we now, so I basically managed to get his phone number and his name and he, where he lived, and I was like, I need to do something. So I got in touch with the police, and I was like, you need to go and have a look with this guy. You need to go and do something, because this is going really, really, really far, and it's getting right into the the, the realms of like serious criminality. So they came out. And this is the point where um, they just weren't listening. It, honestly, it was like explaining basic technology and social media to a 90-year-old. This is somebody, a police officer that's a few years older than me. It was like explaining it to somebody who has quantum leaped to the 1930s and trying to explain to them what Snapchat is. And I'm saying, like, basically this guy is... is um, conning young girls, like very young girls, and he's sending stuff that they should not be sending over the internet. He's doing it all the while, posing as me. And, and so if anybody sees me, they'll be like, there's this guy that was doing yeah. that. And, and basically they said to me, they were going, nah, not really much we can do. And I had to fucking do their job for them and say, no, here is what you can do and here's why you should be doing it. That's that's a big problem. And the, the issue there probably is with the, the training uh, well, the number of issues being being a police officer these days is a tremendously hard job, and for a lot of the failings, I think you can in part chalk them up to frustration by the the cops themselves and the limited resources they have, and mm. the amount of work they're expected to deal with. Not excusing this, and I'm I'm going to address the point directly, and. Um, they won't necessarily understand what law that breaks because they don't get uh, adequately trained in understanding how Scots law works. For me, having the benefit now of having a degree um, and like being friends with solicitors and being in uh, high courts and all the rest of it, I can see that the, the police don't really have the, the adequate training to recognise that such a thing that happened to you immediately, if I was in their shoes now coming out to you, not knowing you or anything like that, I'd recognise immediately that there's at least two crimes being committed there. There's um, abuse, threatening or abusive behaviour towards you for a start. Mm. The underage, approaching underage girls um, under false pretenses, definitely fall into. If, if you're possessing a naked, if you're possessing a naked, I'm not a lawyer, right? You're possessing a naked image of somebody who's under the age of sixteen. That is possessing and creating child pornography. I know that just for watching. Absolutely. I know that for watching um, twenty four hours in police custody. 
So I'm like, how does it? So I know that for watching Channel 4 documentaries. So how does a police officer not know that? And do you know another thing as well? I remember I phoned up uh, when this, it was really kicking off, and this was in 2018. I phoned 101, and I was like, look, I just want a wee bit of advice here. Um, because I'm not really sure what the hell's going on or what the hell I can do here, but I'm honestly at a loss to stop this, and it's using pictures of babies in my family, which is the straw that broke the camel's back. If the guy is listening, I, I'm not going to go down the route of pure naming anybody or anything. He's probably breaking laws as well. But if the guy is listening, he knows that I know. I've got his phone number, I've got his address, I've got loads of pictures of him, I've got his Twitter account, so... You, you you get caught and you end up because people just slip up. He uh, he thought he was he was smart and they get caught, so I caught him out so easily once I managed to get hold of him. Uh, but when I called up 101, I thought I was getting through to a police station, right? I wasn't going through to a fucking call centre and I spoke yeah. to what I can only describe as a patronising me boot. So I explained to her the severity of what was going on and I was like, look, I can deal with some weirdo doing this. It's kind of one of those weird things that you sometimes annoyingly need to just accept in modern society. I was like, what I won't accept is somebody procuring images of young people. And it's nothing to do with me, but I'm somehow tied to it. That is where, where I'm kind of objecting and something needs to stop. And she basically yeah, went, well, sh- 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 so this wee lassie basically went, well, you've got a Facebook, so it's public property and anything. I was like, forget that. Forget me being wrong. That's not what I'm complaining about. What needs to happen here is some action. Now, well, I just spoke to somebody absolutely naff. Honestly, I wish I could have, because I was so angry, I just hung up. Had you not had the the gumption that you do, you would have just been palmed off there, and that's probably what they were able Mm. to do to reduce the amount of work they got to deal with. And that's symptomatic of the the police, as well as all public services being massively underfunded. They've got to try and prioritise things, not to say that they went about this in the right way at all. They didn't. Mm. Um, but that's what they do. They're under pressure and they end up making mistakes like that and right. just palming things off, making them seem less important to you and other people mm. like you. Um, but because you had the, uh, the wherewithal to pursue it, you got the result you did right. in the end. But a other people don't, and that's, made, and that's I, a failing. A couple of... I, had, I basically had to stand up to the... Two police officers eventually came to the house and I had to stand up in front of them. And it was like explaining like your basic science to a class of first years and uh, in order to get them to wrap their heads around what was going on and how there was a crime somewhere in there. They eventually came around to it and then they were going, ah, we don't know because it would be really difficult to, you know, if we get a sheriff who's in his 70s, he doesn't know what Snapchat is. And I'm like, fucking explain it to him then. That is your job yeah. to explain that's, what is happening. I mean, that's that's not really their role either, and that's a misunderstanding by them because they don't deal directly with sheriffs. They mm. they have absolutely zero to do with sheriffs unless they're applying for a warrant. Everything goes through the, the crown office, so that's their job to make the case. Mm. The police submit all the facts that they have if there's enough <clears> evidence. Crown office deal with it from there, so that should be there. It shouldn't even have mentioned right. sheriffs. Eventually, the guy was. It was decent because he started to look at it from a more human perspective and I was like, imagine it was you. But one of the things that I got across, and I don't know if it at home or not, but I just said, okay, well, if something, or let's just say something inevitably happens and inevitably goes wrong, you best believe that I'll be bringing the buck back to your door because I came to you and I told you and you're not doing it anything. Shouldn't, and I don't it, shouldn't, know. it shouldn't need to come to that point. I know, it shouldn't. But I felt, I felt as if that sort of, 
galvanised them a wee bit or like triggered them into action a wee bit and eventually did. Do you know what? I even said, look, here's his phone number uh, and here's the here's the guy, here's his name that I've got and that's the only information I have. You need to go and work out the rest. And they said, nah, nah, it won't be his phone. Do you know what? I can't remember the reason that I knew now, but I said, no, no, it is registered to him. It's not, it's not like a burner phone or a burner number. It is registered to him. So they did go and check it and uh, immediately got the guy's details. They didn't even have to, they were going to give it to their cyber uh, crime or their digital team to go and run through a database or whatever, but it turned out this guy had registered or he'd reported a crime before. So he'd given his name and he'd given his phone number and he'd given his address anyway, so it was obviously all cross-referenced and verified. Can the, the stupidity of people who oh, I know. Such I know, things. for some... For somebody who took such measures, because for about a year and a half, the guy was prolific. But once, I, and I, I had just left it. See, after about a month of me saying, right, I'm coming to get you, caught the guy like so quickly. Um, while we went away in a tangent there, on a more lighthearted note, any any funny funny tales or funny go-to stories you would tell in the pub for your time working in the police? Um, well, right, so... I had a wee think about this earlier on, and there's tons of funny stuff that happened while I was there. Um, it's really, really hard to think off the top of my head, though, because I, know. I right. worked there like almost every day for like six years, and I, I worked as a response cop. So, like, I was basically call to call to call. So, it was, like, funny stuff happened all the time. And um, so, it was good in that respect. Like, I, I was very fortunate. I worked with a couple of guys whose patter was absolutely second to none. Um, and a couple of women who would, I've, I've never seen anybody cut down cheeky wee widows like them in my <laughs> life. Um, you would not believe it. Uh, sharp tongues is anything. But uh, a couple of like just absolutely nonsensical ones like you'd maybe seen something like Scott Squad. Um, one time I was working with a big mate also called Sean and uh, we got... Uh, I called through the radio to say, um, can you deal with a, a snake and give the address? Um, so we're like, a snake? Well, I, I don't get this every day. Like, that would be a laugh, right? We'll go and do that, aye. So we said, aye, we'll, we'll take that one. Uh, I'll go head over. Um, so it turned out that um, it had been a, a spelling error on the, the system that they used to take the calls. So there's two different call centres. There's a call centre and then a control room. So the, right. the call centre, they've, they've put in um, snake in and then later on theft. So the, the, the control room have sent us out to deal with a snake in a house. So we go to this house and uh, I met this woman opening the door, screaming. She's like, it was in there, it was in there. So she runs into the kitchen and uh, she points to a handbag and she's like, that's what it, that's what it was, that's what it was. And uh, we're like, what the fuck's her snake ready to like Steve Irwin it? And uh, she goes, ah, they, they touched that. So I'm confused here. I'm like, what? So I turn around to her and say, what actually happened? And she's like, oh, somebody snuck in the back door and they tried to grab this purse. So obviously their fingerprints and stuff are on it. So right. it's a sneak in, sneak in theft. They've put it on, <laughs> on as a snake in a house. And uh, we're turning up there ready to fucking wrestle a python or so, something like that. What is going through the dispatcher's head when like, right, got to just go and get this snake? At no point do you think, I, oh, I better get on to the RSPCA. Yeah, 
I know. Is this a bit of a weird one? Because we were round the corner from it, they're like, can you go and check this out? And we're like, aye, do you know what? That's not your everyday thing, so it might be a bit funny. Um, but in the end, it was just your your average chancer, somebody you've trying rem- to get in the back <laughs> You've reminded me of a story. There's two that kind of relate to, like, burglaries. Uh, and one that's kind of connected to animals, and it's a story that's been told in my family so many times. So somebody, one of our neighbours... I think it was like two doors up for my gran. Um, wait a minute, how, how am I best telling this? I'm trying to remember it. So the house two doors up, somebody basically gets seen breaking into it. Now there's, there's this guy and his two brothers are in this house. So somebody's phoned or they've somehow, or they've, let's just say they've noticed this guy's getting in the window. So he's climbing up and he's managed to get, like, you know, get through the window. He's getting through the window and he's oblivious to anybody even seeing him. He's like slowly getting himself in and he stands up to be confronted <laughs> with the three owners of the house or the three residents of the house. Uh, and he just looked at him and this guy just like that without even thinking. He went, did you see a budgie flying in here? I'm just trying to catch it. He's claiming his budgie <laughs> flying in the window. They just kicked out. They, they just kicked the absolute fuck at him. And another one is, um, oh wait, no. So there was some, I think this was the same guy. My grandpa was looking for wood to build a fence. And he or to build build something, I'm sure it was a fence. And he said to this wee guy who's committed this robbery, this is another time, he's like, Are you able to get a hold of wood for me? Like you're able to get stuff. This must have been in the seventies or the early eighties. Can you get some wood for me? I want to build a fence. The guy says, I ain't bother. So he comes back with loads of wood and he's like, Here, I've put that on your back. It's just in the back garden. My grandpa's like, right, brilliant, what do I owe you? And he says, No, no, nothing, nothing. He says, What do you mean nothing? You must have got it for somewhere. And he's like, No, no, it's fine. Just just Call it a favour. Maybe cash one back in, had to be laugh. He says, right, here, take a tenner at least. So he took a tenner and he's went away. So guys take a tenner off my grandpa and he's off. My grandpa gets a chap at the door that night. And the guy's like that. Brian, the, that wood, that wood in your back garden, where did you get it? And he says, oh, this wee guy sold me it. Or he brought it for me. And he's like, all right, it's just that I got a load of wood delivered this morning and he's just moved it for your garden to mine. I'm not sorry for my garden years, man. Take money off you. You fly, wee bastard. And then again, my family seemed to be at the centre of it. My grands went out and there's two guys. I was trying to take a, like, out maybe at the next door house. And uh, my grands went out and they're like up at the window, like giving each other a punty. And my grands like, what are you up to? He said, oh, we're just, we're just here to fix something. My grands like, wait a minute. And she went away and got to my ladder. She says, use that. That'll be easier for you. And these guys went in and absolutely tanned this house. My grands the one that gave them the ladder. Fuck's sake. Um, but so but, uh, you dis- I'm sorry, I had another wee one, uh, just a, a quick one. Um, so there's a wee uh, kind of lovable rogue type character uh, who used to roam about the streets where I worked, um, either walking or cycling, um, just saying hello to everybody and that. He was just, he was always up to something, but it was all, it was never anything serious or that. So he was always, his name was Jerry. Uh, I, I can reveal that much, I can't. Say anymore, you know, um, legal reasons and all that. But um, so, Mad Jerry would just cycle about, and uh, he always had a like a, th- a thing with the police. Like he was always dead friendly with. So some folk would take it as uh, he's a like a kind of petty criminal and whatever. But he was just one of these wee guys. Just, you know, the, the type. Just um, his whole life, basically, he wasn't really able to work or anything like that. So he just cut about speaking to everybody, and everybody in the community knew him. A bit daft, and uh, one night we were um, driving along the, the main street. The traffic lights were out, 
So we'd already been told to traffic lights are out Main Street. And uh, so we come across to them, slowing down to obviously look out for traffic coming either side. Um, I looked directly in front of me at the traffic lights and there he is in a fluorescent jacket with a walkie-talkie. Uh, <laughs> he motions to us as if come forward, come forward. The way is clear, so I rolls down the window and I'm like, Jerry, what are you up to? And he's like, I'm just directing the traffic radio into control. So he brings out this wee walkie-talkie and he's like, oh, clear, over, on his go, on his go, waving us away and we're like, <laughs> Don't call it that. Was he no like impersonating a police officer or anything like that? Oh, no, he's just daft, man. He carry on. In his way, he was trying to help out, so uh, I would just let it go. Fair enough. That's good policing at your discretion. So you've you you went you start you went and you're getting at your feet. You know you've you've got to that course, so you can review. I suppose the course was a type of law course then. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and you, you applied for uni, so you know you've been. You're, you're, you're almost finished, are you? Yeah, uh, I finished in June. So, yeah, just about finished. Oh. Um, and the theory, obviously, I take it things are suspended now with the virus. No, everything's going ahead. Just working from home. Oh, is it? So, yeah, yeah. Oh. So, um, definitely graduating. Um, well, whether or not we have a ceremony or whatever, but definitely graduating mm-hmm. in June. Um, so, I've already, I've already got a degree in law um, but this is just for honours to kind of get a classification or whatever to make it more fancy or impressive to mm. employers and what have you. A wee bit more prestige but you've been working in some quite interesting things um, that oh, hopefully you can share some details with in terms of, I take it it's like placements that you need to do then in order to gain experience in conjunction with your studies? No, that's all that's all independent. Um, anything all right. that I've done experience-wise, you need to get yourself. So you need to make connections. And that's it's quite um, it's still quite elitist in that way, in my view. But what, what I mean is is that is, is get, getting that experience, even if you have to obtain it yourself, is that a prerequisite of, of then being awarded your degree or is it something you no. can just do in addition? No, you can, right, just okay. do, you can just fire right through the degree. Um, right, okay. The only reason for getting experience and things is to get... Um, opportunities for jobs and things afterwards so mm-hmm. you don't need to do any kind of formal stuff um there is an option to do like a clinical llb so llb is a basically a, a law degree that allows you to practice afterwards um so you can do a clinical one which is basically where part of your course is dealing with people that come in with legal issues and things you're like supervised by a qualified solicitor and they mm-hmm. like guide you and giving people practical advice on how to solve legal issues, which is a really great thing. Um, I would have done it if I had the time, um, but it suited me better to do the regular one and just do all mm. the theoretical stuff, um, which you still gain a lot of insight from because most of the, the guys in, in women's worry are teaching you um, where or are still practising solicitors themselves. So mm. it's, it's great the level of teaching you get. What's in terms of it being elitist? Do you think it's elitist in terms of getting your foot in the door within a law, a legal practice, or in what sense? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, it's all about who you know and not what you know. Um, mm. To a large extent, in, in terms of getting your foot in the door, as you say, further down the line, um, you obviously your talent comes to the fore and you're judged mm-hmm. on that. But in terms of actually getting uh, what's called a traineeship. 
your so your first job in law and you've got to do your two years as a trainee before you're certified as a solicitor for right. basically for life or as long as you can practice. Um in terms of getting that, it's it's very much who you know. So you've got to there's all these kind of networking events and things at uni um designed to widen access. But ultimately it's still very elitist. If you come from a family who are well known and have connections in law and all the rest of it, you're so much more likely to just walk into something than your average guy. Um, and I know quite a few people come from working class backgrounds like myself who don't really have that. And it's it's a huge barrier still. Um, it is getting better and the unis are recognising that. Employers are recognising it to a certain extent. Um, mm-hmm. It is easier a bit, but it's still very much one of the professions where that's still very much present. Nepotism isn't particularly conducive to thriving in any sense, is it really? So you'd imagine that they would open their eyes yeah, and get to that. I've got I've got friends who will freely admit themselves they they've gotten their traineeships through pure nepotism, mm. and it's not something they're proud of, you know. That's but mm-hmm. can you blame them? You take you take a job where it's Abs- going. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely not. I wouldn't be blaming sure. them. You know, do, do you know think that is like that kind of takes me to a whole general thing. It is okay, or it is possible to to dislike or or be angry at a system or a, or a you know a collection of systems while not actually blaming the people who take part in it. It's kind of whole thing like, oh, well, I see you, uh, I, I see you're um, you're criticising the Tory government, but you don't mind taking their pound during this time of crisis. That's what I want to address. I see people saying that they think they're fucking smart. Gee, yeah. do you not realise that you're just showing yourself up as being a fucking moron? Do you think this yeah. money's coming out of Boris Johnson's savings, savings accounts? Oh. Taxpayer money, what, fuck off. One that, one that gets me every time is people who bring up the issue of like slave labour in parts of the world, so the Far East, um, say China, for example, because that's where like, iPhones are made. People say, oh, and yet you tweet this from an iPhone. Oh, sorry for trying to exist in a, in a marketplace, in a world that is a prerequisite of it is having a smartphone and the smartphones are solely controlled and made by these companies who exploit workers. Sorry for participating in that system while thinking it's wrong, you absolute moron. I know, I know. You're like, so, like sorry if I'm making my point by just fucking completely disconnecting myself for the entire world and protesting in uh, silence. Shut the yep. fuck up. I know. It's one of the most absolutely redundant arguments I've ever heard and I hate it. As soon as I see it for someday, I'm like, you don't know what you're talking about. I'm not even engaging with you. Nah. Um, the, uh, so to go back to the type of work, in addition to your studies that you were doing, am I correct in saying that it was advising people who were seeking asylum? Is that correct? Like refugees? Yes. Well remembered. Um, so when I first started um, a law degree, I was working full time and studying at night. So mm-hmm. second second year I switched to full time once uh um got the humanism gig, so I'll go into that after. Um first year, about it. Uh, so <laughs> first first year I spent um working with a company who were a housing provider for asylum seekers. Um obviously I worked in Glasgow, but they were based all over the UK. And yeah. basically um I've no qualms. Um, and no fear about legal action and saying that the company were a shower of bastards and the way they Mm. treated people the way the way they treated their staff was ridiculous but more importantly the people they 
treated who were vulnerable, didn't speak a word of English and what all sorts of issues you can imagine coming from war-torn countries. The way they treated people coming through the asylum system and exploited it for their own profit absolutely disgusted me. And mm. there was one day in particular, I'll come on to the work I actually did um, in a minute, but uh, there was one day where um, the like the owner or managing director, can't remember which, came in and he's the grandson of Winston Churchill and brother of Nicholas Soames, MP. So mm. massive Tory um, comes into the office and everyone who was maybe not as like politics savvy as, as I was, there was a few like me, um, refused to go in and see him shake his hand and all the rest of it because I just thought this whole system is fucked. Um, mm-hmm. The way that you're doing things here, the whole company, the whole business model was based around profiting from human misery. Um, the, the way that they treated people in their prisons, their asylum system, uh, or the housing system they provided for asylum seekers was awful. And um, I have no qualms either in saying I grasped them into numerous papers for practices that were doing, went against their guidelines. Um, I can't it from them loads of times, but I, I don't really care. I mean, I've no no qualms about um, saying these things about them. Uh, it's well, well reported. So I've no, of all the money in the world to, uh, no specific people or anything, but um, of all the money in the world to to sue people. But uh, profit that looks very good for them. Mm, profit takes precedent. There is a, quite a few questions I'd like to ask, but you've kind of taken me on quite nicely. So. Profit takes precedent in so many things, but what we've seen, obviously, with the coronavirus is that money, to a degree, is now fucking redundant because other than supplies and ordering stuff to your house, you can't really do anything. But what what do you... Like, what is your perception been of the changes that we've seen, or maybe, let's just say, some awakenings we've seen societally since the whole lockdown thing, have you have you detected in it? Because I've got quite a lot of thoughts on how things are quickly changing and how they will continue to change. But I'm keen to see what what your thoughts are. I'm cautiously, cautiously optimistic that we'll see yeah, continuously change. Uh, we're a lot less money orientated and materialistic. I think mm. in the last even the last few weeks, just um, it's just. I mean, it's. It's hard to describe because we're in a really, really novel situation where everything seems to be changing day on day and we're in closer contact with people than we've ever been. Um, So it's it's weird. So we're all getting updated constantly. We're we're, um, awash with all this information day in, day out. But I think, yeah, society as a whole has kind of moved in a direction where we're looking after each other. We're participating in community things again. Um, even we things like walking around my estate and my state mandated um, one hour walk. Um, you see, <laughs> see we um, pictures of rainbows and all the, the houses that the kids yeah. have put up. So that's like a wee scheme thing for the kids out and they're walking, whatever, feeling a bit lonely, kind of see their pals and things. Something for them to do, count the, the rainbows that they see in the windows. And we things like that, people looking after their neighbours, going and getting their shopping and all that kind of stuff. 
um, which you never really hear. People are always too busy for that kind of thing normally. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're not really thinking about ourselves just now. Everyone's kind of looking out for each other. I totally agree. Um, we've seen a lot of our communities being reinvigorated and call it community spirit or whatever, people looking out for each other. And I wonder, I suppose it's probably the first time in history, the first time in our history anyway, that there's been something that's united every single person. We're all susceptible in the same way. It doesn't matter how much money you've got. It doesn't matter how, really how fit or healthy you've got. You can still, uh, sorry, how fit and healthy you are. You could, you could still catch it. It doesn't matter what resources you've got, how big your house is. You know, we're all now a few weeks away potentially from real major crisis and it's like everybody realising that we have to, you know, in order for one of us to get through, we all have to get through. Or for all of us to get through, then we all have to pull together and all do our bit. And I just hope that people then continue that mindset, you know, once we do get out the other side of this. Um, I've obviously been quite vocal in the past about being opposed to any sort of class system, um, Mm. which I think, I think up until now, um, and as I say, I'm cautiously optimistic of some some change at least afterwards. But we've had up until now in the UK still a very prevalent class system, and it might vary depending on regions. But as a whole, uh, the UK, Scotland included, people like to think that we are kind of an exception in a lot of ways, and in, in some ways we are. But there's still a very prevalent class system there, and hopefully there's the start of the kind of disintegration of that. I don't fully believe that it'll ever be eradicated, but mm-hmm. um, hopefully people will start to kind of break down those barriers, engage with people more, and start to work together for a, a more kind of common good. Mm. Even a marginal disintegration of that class system is going to be beneficial. And we're talking, if we were to see 0.0.1% of that evaporate, it's going to be for the, the better good or the common good. Another thing, just on touching on the whole circle thing and the way that they're allowed to operate, I hope that people remember the power and influence that we have in unity. You know, we are the ones that are in control. That isn't sort of some, you know, foundationless Russell Brand-esque part of where he's like, if we all unite as one, then we can, like, it's not that, but there is power in before, unity, you know. The, yeah, before people that, were scared to do that, but now that they've I seen know. that we can survive without complying with these rules, etc., they will Aye. do it. But people are scared to do it on their own. So it's that thing where everybody's scared to make the first move and you know, be one of the first ones out there to put their head above Aye. the parapet, you know. And what's shot down, when somebody does that, they're completely shot down, they're, they're absolutely annihilated, the character assassinated in the media. They can't do it to every single one of us. Uh, and absolutely. it's quite a lot It's quite a lot to ask that after a few a few weeks. But what, obviously we've seen, first of all, the government were refusing to call a, a, you know, a formal closure um, for the time being on bars, restaurants and clubs, essentially just condemning these people to absolute ruin in order to protect the insurance companies. There's an uproar, petitions are starting, people start acting in unison. What do you know? They eventually close them down. They say, you know, they were, I don't know if they were saying they weren't going to pay people. Now they're paying people. Oh, but the self-employed want to get in it. Everybody stands up together again. He says, no, no, you'll be, you'll be fucking doing it for the self-employed as well and you'll be helping other people. Now today or yesterday, we're seeing 17.9 and maybe and slightly incorrect, but £17.9 billion pounds of NHS de- debt written off. Okay, who did they owe that debt to? The government, the state. So that's 
a state-owned and a state-managed body owes money to the state. That's like me owing myself 50 grand. Yeah. That's me owing myself 50 grand. And there you go, it's written off. It's completely written off. So, 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 so I saw somebody commented in our interaction about that before yeah. and said, gave it the old, there's no magic money tree line. Yeah. Well, there's a magic money tree when it suits. I know. He said there's no magic money tree and this is going to be paid for by, you know, wait a minute, I'm just going to get the, the middle class. Exchange. I'm, I'm, sure it was, I'm sure it was the middle class he mentioned, which is Aye, another, so one these, another one that these types like to roll out. It's not the rich, it's not the poor, it's the, the middle, the working class, the people that are the backbone of this country that are going to pay for this. And that's that's something they like to roll out now and then. Wait, so if it's not the rich that are paying for it, the people that are profiting most from our labour, then to me there's something wrong with that. So the point I made is I said that, well, you know, if the government's holding its own health service to ransom with billions of debt and then writes it off, or like completely writes it off, it very clearly indicates that that debt was non-essential and is actually completely fucking negotiable. And I'm not going to, next, and I said, next time we hear politicians pontificating to us and the requirements for this debt, blah, 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 tell them to go and fuck themselves. That, that sounds like quite a caveman response, but it's like, this hasn't been debated any further. Go and fuck yourself. You're not holding the, uh, I've kind of taken off on my tangent and I'm just starting to get annoyed now, but it's hard not to get annoyed when you, when you start coming into it. But basically just these things that we see, mortgage freezes, interest rates, interest payments, debt, all these things, they're, they're man-made, they're fictitious, and we'll accept that if we participate in a system, we take the benefits of said system. Sometimes, you, well, most of the time, you do have to play by the rules of that system and the downsides that don't really go your way, but you don't have to be accepting everything you're told and then just accept, oh, well, the that's capitalism. The thing is, this debt, this debt is owed to private companies who are profiteering from state contracts mm-hmm. they should never have had in the first place. So it's a systematic failure by the state. Um, You can talk about PFI schools and all all the rest of it, which are an absolute disgrace. Um, The government paying way over the odds for things and perhaps, I'd suggest, cautiously, uh, some collusion in there as well in terms of tendering contracts and things to, to the detriment of the end consumer in society as a whole. So I think it's... They're really exposing themselves as having failed um, both the, the Tory and Labour governments for the last, say, 18, 19 years. I suppose I'm going to stick with the coronavirus sort of line of question at this point. Let's just take it to a, to a human level. What are you really looking forward to when life gets back to normal? Um, well, I'm a, I'm a big family guy, so um, in October there... Um, I just had uh, first nephew come into the family, um, mm. first baby, um, uh, older sister um, had her son Keon um, in October, and it's it's been absolutely brilliant. Um, just the amount of time I've been able to spend with them, I'm quite fortunate. Um, I, I I do work and study probably cumulatively about seventy, sometimes plus what hours a week, but. I organise it myself, so I've been quite fortunate to spend quite a lot of time with him. Um, mm. His middle name's named after me, and I'm his godfather and all the rest of it. So, uh, but to me, like getting back to things like spending time with my nephew, um, seeing my mum, my dad, and, and things like that, because we're all kind of we're all respectful of the social distancing rules, and we've got a few mm-hmm. vulnerable 
um, high-risk people in the family. So we're all taking strict adherence of it. Um, getting back to things like that, simple things like going to meet your mates for a coffee or a pint or whatever, not encouraging uh, uptake of alcohol or whatever else, but hmm. um, it's just general socialising with your mates and things, just going out and shooting the shit. And uh, the life throws a lot of pressure at you. Um, and I think, essentially, being stuck in the one environment for too long, you do start to go a bit mental and not really have a release. And it's just it's just nice to get out right. and out and have that freedom. So it's the little things that you do miss the most just now, quite enjoying um, the aspect of, I don't know, this kind of sense of, uh, community togetherness and everybody getting out there, getting out the walk and everything like that. Being quite health conscious and things seems to be quite nice. But looking forward to getting back to normality. But cautiously optimistic that we'll have a kind of slightly different normality going forward. And people are that wee bit more conscious because we've never experienced anything like this in our lifetimes. I know. I, I just hope that we don't experience too much of it again. I'm really looking for family. That's what I'm really looking forward to: family and friends. And just I'm missing him. He's annoyed me, though, to begin with, because he wasn't taking it seriously. So we didn't have a falling out, but I didn't hold back on what I was saying. Lot, because he... A lot of older people were the same, and I don't know why uh, not having had the opportunity to speak to them, but a lot of, mm. I've seen a lot of older people about in uh, last week. Well, it must have been about 10 days ago now, just before like the, the full-on lockdown. Started a wee lady in Morrison's asked me to um, get a, a loaf of bread off the top shelf, and she says to me, "Oh, I, I shouldn't really be out, son." And I was like, oh, "Why are you? It's, you know, got anything to do with your shopping for you and things?" And I, I just think that I've seen quite a lot of people out that strike me as I don't, I don't know their own circumstances, so I can't really comment. But Aye. I just think he, he, I really uh, it seriously and. Uh, he 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 definitely wasn't, it? and then and then he he was taking it completely serious. But there's been a couple of lapses, um, where it's just where it's just as if he's just not taking it. In. Maybe he's just not consuming media as much as me. But no, I know what you mean about the older people. It's it's a shame. I saw a woman in Tesco that was must have been about she was very old anyway, maybe eighties, nineties, and uh, she was getting her stuff, and I was like, no, I let her go in front of me and stuff so she could. You know, get her, her messages through, and then when she went to pay for it, and her card got rejected, so obviously I stepped in, and I was like, "Listen, let me help," and I helped her put her stuff back in the shelves. I didn't want her having to put it all back herself, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Just in case there's anybody that's not understand, that was a joke. I would have, I would have paid for it. She, she's non-existent. She's fictitious for the purposes of me telling that story. No, but um. Paddy, I'm missing my grandpa because we usually a couple of times a week meeting up for lunch. We're still speaking every day on the phone. It's human nature in it to take things for granted. You know, going for a coffee, like I always love to go for a cluster before the gym or like just that or, or, or to go to the gym. Like I don't know when I'm going to get back to the gym or go and see pals or go, go for some food yeah. or just pop over and see family. So whenever we do get to do these things again, because I've not seen anybody. I saw my mum. Uh, I saw my mum through her living room window, and we stood about eight feet away in the grass for about half an hour last week. But that was it. Um, 
I, I suppose it will just make you appreciate it even more. Like I was supposed to be in Malaga with my grandpa right now. That's not happening. Barcelona's not happening. A few other things are not happening. So whenever I do get back over the road to Barcelona, or whenever I do get to go and do these things, I feel like I'll just and I will really, really appreciate it so much. And then oh, you will just, because I'll be there. Uh, uh, so you'll uh, see me. I'll already uh, be there. So it just it hammers home, doesn't it? Like what what is really important. It's such a cliche. It's pure Disney movie birthday card pish. But it just hammers home what really is important. Uh, and although it's brutal, if we have to find the positives when it's done and, you know, when it's over and when we can be back to normal, whenever that may be, then we might be like, do you know what? We're not going to take these things for granted. And it might even inspire or spur people on to, to doing the things that they enjoy in life and just being like, wow, life isn't really as guaranteed as you think it is. I better get my Absolutely. skates on and just, just enjoy myself. Uh, talking about doing things you enjoy and things that are different, uh, and out with the norm also talk me through your other venture uh, I'll, I'll just let you explain that in any way that you would imagine you'd explain it to people who have got no idea what you're about to tell them right so that actually might be easier than you think because I was speaking to somebody from South America not too long ago um, in Spanish and you know what Spanish isn't perfect uh, I can speak at an okay level um, South American is a wee bit different as you know you're much more of an expert on it than I am um, I was trying to explain to them what somebody who does weddings but is not a priest is and I've also had the same issue in Spanish classes where my teachers have been uh, from Malaga and Catalonia um, so I'm trying to explain what somebody who does weddings but is not a religious guy is so I'm a celebrant basically is a Scots term for it everyone who can conduct a legal wedding in Scotland is a celebrant now what I belong to is loosely described as humanism so I'm a humanist um, I'm not part of the humanist society um, which is a kind of I don't know the right word for it but prescribed kind of organisation where they follow a kind of code of conduct right, okay. and things like that part of a wee smaller group who are just a bunch of nice people um, in general so our general ethos is just being nice charitable um, getting to know people telling their story and making their day for their wedding um, we generally try and have a bit of lightheartedness and humour or anything really that couples want um, so obviously as a business um, people pay for our services um, mm-hmm. we contribute all collectively to charity and we do a big um, charity donation every year we meet up maybe three or four times a year to discuss where the money's going um, the last few years it's been different charities last year's was um, Scottish Association for Mental Health um, because we felt it was quite pertinent at the time um, just in the news and things like that, we've heard about a lot of cases of people suffering with poor mental health, and it's affected one or two of us. So we did that. Um, there was somebody uh, who we worked with tragically died um, of a respiratory condition, so we donated that the year before, and things like that. So basically, we're just a bunch of good guys, if you will. Um, so we 
obviously run this. There's like 25 of us. We all do weddings. And some do funerals and some do like baby namings as well, which is like a kind of non-religious christening, if you will. It's mm-hmm. probably the best way for most people to understand that. Um, weddings is what I primarily do. Um, so I first got into that in 2017. Um, I was invited to do it. My dad worked with a guy who runs a organisation and he said, would Chris be any good at this? Um, because we're kind of struggling for people at the moment to cover popular dates. Um, I took it on as a wee kind of like side project um, to supplement my income. At that time, as I said to you before, I was working full-time, studying full-time mm-hmm. as well. Um, so I thought over the summer I'll cover popular dates, a wee bit of extra money. Um, and as soon as I started doing it, absolutely fell in love with it and going out to meet new people all the time getting to know their stories and when they tell you how you absolutely made that part of their day obviously there's there's so much goes into it in Scotland we've got this like massive culture around weddings where um, people spend a lot of money and things like that you don't necessarily have to but Mm. a big occasion is made of it in any case regardless of um, finances and whatnot. So weddings are, are regarded as, as you know, a, a big, big day. So um, for me, there's a lot of work goes into it, go out and meet people, speak to them, get to know their story, what they want from it. And some people want the big fairy tale wedding um, to have their story told fully and do all these kind of traditional things. And others want something that's a wee bit more simple and they're a wee bit more relaxed. Um, so go out and meet people and talk to them, get to know them a bit, what their hopes and expectations are for it. And then it's up to me once I've can ask them some questions and things if they're comfortable. Um, their story, I put together something called a wedding script and that lets them see how everything's going to go start to finish. Right. So there's a lot of places don't do that. Um, I don't know what um, places of religion do or other even like humanist societies and things like that. But personally, um, I let them see how everything's going to go so that they can get themselves comfortable with it, um, know everything that's going to happen and hopefully take a wee bit of the the nerves away, give them loads of options as well because there's tons of different types of people, people that want to speak in front of all their guests and all that, say personal vows and declare their undying love to each other. And then you get people that think, nah, that's not really for me. Like, I'm, I'm not really that outspoken or don't want all that attention on me, even though it's my big day. So, yeah, yeah, all these wee things go into it. And a lot of work goes into it before the big day. So, like, the easiest part for me is turning up on the day, all this work prepared in the script. I'm ready to go, having rehearsed and whatnot. Um, and just do it as a happy occasion for me, walking into a workplace where everybody's happy to see these two. Hi. getting married is brilliant and then people come up to me afterwards and say no oh, that was lovely thanks very much I'm like how positive is that that's just I'm so fortunate to be able to do that that's lovely you must pick up a lot of good energy from it I suppose my first question is why have we never been to the party of a wedding because surely you must get invited to some and you must be looking for I a do. first one at some point I do get invited to a lot um, but generally just because I don't really know Many, many, if any, people there. Sometimes I'll do one for people that I know or are family friends, etc. 
and I'll mm. stay like for the dinner and things for those if they really want me to. Um, mm-hmm. But generally, other than that, I, mean, I don't do it just because I don't really know anyone. It's a bit awkward, and I don't want them to pay for a meal for me. You know, it's mate. You need to ride the gravy train. If somebody's offering you a free party, I know. Or red, I, you, I know. I'm just yes. that type of guy, but um, no, I mean, a lot of really generous, a lot of really generous people offer right. things like that. Um, generally, only stay if it's like a family friend or somebody I know, one of my mates, um, something like that, and. Unfortunately, so far, I've not really been able to do many for like actual mates because I've been booked in their dates. Um, mm. as I say unfortunately in that sense. In another sense, on the other hand, if you like, it's very fortunate because um, when I first started out, as I said to you, I was just covering popular dates and that was the intention for me. Nobody was going mm. to give me um, a great number of weddings, but my reputation built so quickly uh, independently on its own, um, just by word of mouth, that I ended up with in my second year doing it, eighty weddings. So now there's only fifty two weeks in a year. Yes, and so one of those weeks year. is Christmas, and one of those weeks is Halloween. So I can you can actually see that's eighty two in less than a year. Yeah. So that is quite so, an impressive. Yep, um, and this year. Uh, well, I was due to do 97 this year, but uh, for the coronavirus, obviously, has postponed quite a lot of them, um, and a lot of them are postponed into next year. Um, mm. to, so I'll still, I'll still be doing well over 75 this year, um, and that's that's good going. Um, and next year, again, um, halfway through the year, I'll be hopefully starting my traineeship as a, a solicitor, so um, I'll just be doing it at the weekends, but I'll continue it uh, because it's an enjoyable job and obviously it's an extra source of income. I enjoy going out to meet new people all the time, doing different things, um, and it's great practice for public speaking. So you get out there, there's a lot of the time, there's a, a wee bit of a curveball thrown at you. There's things mm-hmm. happening at venues and just with wedding ceremonies in general that catch you out. You've got to think on your feet. And that's kind of quite helpful to me in preparing myself for what's to come in terms of the next moves in my career, hopefully appearing in court and all the rest of it. So mm. um, not to say it's anywhere near the same thing or the ne- anywhere near the same level of pressure, but it's all it does require this- experience. Exactly, it requires the same level of refined or the same type of refined skills as you say that public speaking. And that's good. It doesn't surprise me that you, you have so many people looking at book you because you're a people person. Do you, you still welcome inquiries even though you're totally booked out, or are you, is it just no worth inquiring? Me? Like, what's the deal with it? No, absolutely. Um, I've still got some dates, so uh, people are always welcome to inquire. It's always worth giving us a shout and. Um, even from the perspective of if you think, well, that's a really popular date, he's going to be booked already. I'll know somebody who I can personally vouch for as being excellent. Um, mm-hmm. And you can, well, people can take my word for it if they like or if they don't. Um, but I've got so many positive reviews. If you check out the, the Facebook page, it's something like, I don't know what it is now, seventeen or eighteen hundred likes on the Facebook page and wow. well, well over well over a hundred five star reviews. Um and some of the words in them are quite incredible. 
I'm very so, articulate. People actually left the reviews, and I'm, I, I'm uh, not ashamed to admit I've stolen some of their uh, vocabulary for uh, nice. and whatnot. So, um, some some very intelligent people as well. But so um, obviously, no, word of mouth in people's reviews are the best way to go about deciding if you're going to hire somebody, if you're going to take somebody's service. So, where exactly can people see these things to read these reviews, and which then is the best way to get in direct contact with you? So. If they're looking for those types of things, then Facebook page. I know not everyone's on Facebook, um, but they can get me on my Twitter page and whatnot. That's more kind of light-hearted and for nonsense, as, as you'll know personally, Sean. But um, Humanist Chris Gray on Facebook, um, if they want to look at reviews and things like that, email address and other contact details are on there. Um, Instagram as well, so under the same name. As always, the links for these things will be in the episode notes. If you're somebody who has got, I don't know, maybe you're going to do a baby soon. Maybe you're going to um, also do a wedding soon, whatever it might be. If you are looking for a humorist or a celebrant, then get in touch with Chris because I'm sure you'll have gauged by now that he's brand new and he's got loads of reviews that can vouch for him. So happy days. And it'll be a, a 95, no, £900 for your cheek. That's what the price will be. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, uh, if I was to bill you for your cheek, it would be well over nine hundred pounds. <laughs> Very true. The uh, just as we kind of round up, I suppose I'm going to be asking people through this time what tips, if you any wee tips or any advice on how to deal with the the isolation and the tough times that lie ahead. Like, what sort of tip bits of wisdom have you got? What works for me, um, I found, is just taking time out for yourself. Um, I know that might sound stupid because at the moment all we seem to have is time, but mm. take time out. Even just we allocated slots of time, half an hour, an hour to do something that you enjoy, whether that's going out for a walk or exercising. Or recently, I've been doing exercising in the garden, um, or taking half an hour to play in the Xbox, big way that I am. Um, but just allocate a, a bit of time to do almost absolutely nothing, something to switch your brain off. Because the rest of the time you're occupied still, even though you, it seems like you have all this time. So totally yeah, agree. That, 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 that's what works for me. Um, so that's all I can offer, really. Aye, no, I, um, I, I get you there about your brain being switched on. One thing that I would suggest is subscribing to the Bleather Patreon for anybody who's looking for any extra content <laughs> or anything to listen to. There is a whole host of new content, exclusive bonus shows. We've got a music show coming up. Uh, actually, the music show is going to be excellent. I probably should have mentioned this earlier. Uh, we've got having bands coming on, established, well-known bands and musicians coming on to talk about their music uh, and also to perform, which is something a wee bit outside the box. I don't know any podcasts that have got live music on them, so I'm really, I'm really excited to that. Really excited for that one as well. Um, That'll be so, really good to get yeah, some excitement. Sean McDonald underscore zero one. Get him on there. Um, uh, the link to the Patreon is in there if anybody would like to come up there because there's also going to be a few other shows and there's also the Spanish episodes which will be exclusively on Patreon where I'm interviewing people in Spanish so it's something completely different and it's a great way for people um, to learn and to practice. I for one will be joining that because uh, uh, practice uh, has been lacking recently just because I've, I've not been able to through studies but uh, I'll be practicing until we meet again in a social environment. 
Did you ever meet my mate Pablo in Barcelona, the Argentinian guy for Buenos Aires? Yes, I did actually. My first night there. Uh, in I, at was in the bar with Steph, wasn't it? And Cole was right. there as well. Right, Cole was there. Uh-huh. Should we get? We should probably get Steph a shout out at this point because she'll be listening. I'm sure she better be. Tell you what, uh-huh. if, if if Steph doesn't mention this, we know that she hasn't listened to the whole thing. Uh-huh. So this is a Steph, great wee. Like, Steph, if you're not listening to this, your whole birthday weekend in Barca for your thirtieth meant absolutely nothing. That was an amazing weekend, wasn't it? Remember it? Brunchy oh, electronics. Up on oh. the roof in that flat. What, what, a, what a weekend. Well, Pablo is the first person that's coming on, and I'm going to be speaking to him, obviously, completamente in Espanol, what about what he's up to and how they're dealing with it, because obviously Spain is at the epicentre of the European coronavirus crisis, mm-hmm. uh, and Catalonia's been hit particularly bad. Hard, bad as well. So we talk about that and it's completely Spanish. So for anybody who would like to learn a language, you're in lockdown, you may as well. So muchas gracias for your time. Chris, this has been a good laugh, mate. And all that we speak like every day, but it's actually the most I've spoken to you just directly since this whole lockdown carry on has happened. So it's I been know. great fun. It's been a pleasure, mate. Thank you very much for having me on. Escape your every day with out-of-this-world action. From the gritty apocalypse of the Walking Dead universe to the cyberpunk realm of The Watch and the criminal underbelly of Gangs of London, AMC Plus is more than entertaining. It's epic. Feel all the chills and thrills with Shudder's Halfway to Halloween Month. Experience Shudder's biggest month of horror featuring a new season of Creepshow and new movie premieres every week, all available ad-free and on demand. Start your free trial today at amcplus.com.